previously on Black Magic Treehouse. I love Are You Afraid of the Dark? I don't know if it would be legally binding, but just for the record, I would marry Are You Afraid of the Dark if I could. I would have a child with Are You Afraid of the Dark and name him Freddy Dark. Hayden Christensen is a bad actor and he ran over my cat. Jose, that's not potato salad. No! And now, the thrilling conclusion. haven't talked about uh the reason we're here today tell the silver sight so let's bring it back to this three-part epic this three-part special event uh so this started season seven and i remember watching all three episodes that night i'm sure it was a saturday you know it's gotta get into that snick that snick block of programming uh so i Rewatched it back when I initially got these black market DVDs, and of course I watched it again for to prepare for this episode. And you know, we we run the risk, we run the occupational hazard on this show of looking back at uh, you know these things we were previously fascinated or enthralled with as kids. And there is, speaking of shattered glass, there is definitely the potential for a glass to be shattered, for fond memories to become not-so-fond realities. Uh, But I gotta say, you know, like Eric mentioned towards the top of the show, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark really does still stack up across the board. Uh, Most of anything that DJ McHale touched still really resonates. And this is a great, this is a great three-part, honestly, cap to the series. They might as well have ended it, um, which I guess they basically did. And it was only three months (laughs) after uh, the special air that Are You Afraid of the Dark took its final bow, at least in its quote-unquote original uh, version. It's weird. That's why I was wondering if this was the finale, because it feels weird after this to then go back and just have more episodes of the people who just had this genuinely supernatural experience just be like um and now here's a make up about yeah i don't know a pair of shoes that haunted a guy or something oh yeah it's and I, i'm sure there's a whole story behind the story as far as what might have been originally intended uh you know was this DJ McHale's uh, was this his kind of personal attempt to put a pin in the series? Did they bring him back? Uh, just you know, more or less as a I don't want to say a work for hire kind of thing, but did they just kind of tap him randomly, randomly to be like, hey, can we make a feature? You know, is there some kind of you know movie length uh, potential here? And this was just what you know what 
came as a result of that request you know i don't know um but it really does feel like an ending to the series and like i said it might as well be it has all the trappings of it but let's get into it if you uh if you yourself are a fan of are you afraid of the dark but you missed out on tale of the silver sight um let me just say that if you can by any means go and watch it uh we're probably going to be spoiling things here on out uh and it does have some cool little twists and turns and it really is nice to enjoy it uh, as it unravels in real time uh but we're going to jump into this thing proper so we have right from the get-go when this uh this epic starts we have gary gary's back guys it's been a uh one season uh three years since we've last seen him he's college age now uh but he is returning to the campfire ring of the midnight society uh but as our um what do you call that i'm sure there's like a technical term for like that scene you see before the uh, the theme rolls in a show is there is there some kind of verbiage uh well there's like, cold open but... the opening scene the opener uh yeah, I don't know if that's what this is or not, but let's go with that. The cold open. Yeah, because I think cold opens technically are supposed to be like disconnected from the rest of the episode, maybe. Mm. But I think people just kind of use it for any pre-credit sequence. Okay. Well, this isn't a pre-credit sequence. You know, we do see the regular Are You Afraid of the Dark uh, theme at the top, which is, of course. Okay, well, I don't know what you're asking then. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows what we're asking? But in any case... Uh, college age Gary is back, but uh, he is beset by a nightmare in which he sees a strange little, and I think this is actually how I have to look back at IMDb to see if this is how this character is credited, because uh, I just saw the name in, in the Wikipedia entry. Yep, that is the official name. He sees a waif kid, a waif kid. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like just waif would have done it because isn't waif in of itself i don't uh, i don't know i feel um, i'm not going to look up the definition of waif maybe just ghostly is is that what a waif is <laughs> a ghost a spirit a specter sure okay so he sees this waif kid at the campfire and there's a great gotcha moment where uh he goes up to introduce himself to this kid he thinks is another member of the midnight society but then the kid turns around and he's got a snarly craggy face and then gary wakes up oh the whole thing's been a nightmare phew close call but then what happens he gets a call on his rotary phone it looks like in his college dorm and it's from his grandma uh oh did i mention in his in his dream he saw his grandpa he saw his grandpa and he was his grandpa was urging him urging gary to help him something terrible was happening but that was the point that gary woke up his grandma calls him the second he wakes up from the dream to tell him his grandpa's dead so we already have quite the emotional hook at the start of this episode and we come to meet gary's grandma and we see wow it's actually the mom from the lonely ghost did you notice that I there's a couple actors throughout this. Some of them I was able to pinpoint where which episode I knew them from. And with her, I was just like, I know that I have seen her before. I don't remember from what. Probably just playing a fairly innocuous role 
of yeah a parent or guardian of some kind yeah it's actually um her her role is pretty integral to the lonely ghost episode she's actually the grieving mother of of the ghost herself uh, and she's pretty memorable in that oh. episode actually yeah she does she's a great crier so they yeah, really, I was gonna say typecast. Yeah, they really they really put those uh her prowess there to use in this episode as she's grieving the loss of her husband. Um, so I that always was, think about yeah. Go as ahead. I'm getting older, I start seeing like I start thinking more about like Christopher Plummer, you know, or whatever mm. in like the girl with the dragon tattoo and Knives Out, like all these roles that you get at a certain point where it's like. <laughs> Okay, in this movie, your purpose is to die because you're old. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, that's got to be a weird, but maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's like a good rehearsal yeah. for what it's, I don't know. Maybe it helps you deal with it's just. <laughs> but it's got to be, there's got to be a point where you're like, I guess this is just what I play now. The old guy who dies or the old woman who grieves yeah. her dead relatives. <laughs> like it's as if i don't have enough of that going on in my real life but okay here we go uh that was that you brought something up that i was curious about myself because she's the only one that i could place um just by the side of her so there are other actors uh in in this uh three-parter from other episodes of are you afraid of the dark yeah there's uh there's Shandu from uh, Magician's Assistant, Shandu Kandu. Oh. He's the guy in the wheelchair. Oh, okay. And then there was another guy. The guy that they meet at the amusement park was another one I couldn't place, but I know he's been on another episode. Walter Massey. The old guy with yeah. like I'm going to look it up now. Uh, he, was the vo- he was a voice in Arthur's Halloween. He's Principal Herb Haney. That name sounds... <laughs> Vaguely lewd. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Herb Haney. Okay. Whatever you say. Um, yeah, four episodes. Well, at least two of them were Silver Sight. Oh, right? yeah. Three of them were Silver Well, it says three of them were Silver Sight, but he doesn't show up until the, the third episode, so that's weird. Uh, the Tale of the Room for Rent. Right. Season four. Yeah. Which one's that? It's the one where the room is for rent. Um, the tale of apartment two fourteen. You mean no? So we already yeah, talked about that. Yeah, this is a a different one called the tale of the room for rent. It's the one where the room is for rent. Oh, okay, I do remember that one. Yeah, that that would be another one that I rewatched as an adult and was like, I don't think I would have liked this as a kid because it's about, um. I'll read the synopsis. A pilot killed in combat during World War II haunts the man he believes killed him and stole his girlfriend, the latter of whom is a psychic who allegedly communicates with the dead. Yeah, so that's another kind of love story one that I can appreciate as an adult. Yeah. Anyway, so Tale of the Silver Sight. Um, I don't want to to get too into the weeds with like the plot description, so I'm going to do my best to really just kind of thumbnail this so basically the premise is gary's grand gary and tucker's grandfather has died because as you know despite all uh visual evidence to the contrary gary and tucker are related believe it or not accent wise too (laughs) yeah tucker Uh, is so like yo ma what's up with us a pizza pie (laughs) 
uh, and then you have Gary, who's like, "Hey, gang, you know, let's see what we can do." We put our. Just, uh, yeah. I feel like I'm going to get into a whole nother tangent just talking about Gary. Um, let me, yep. Let me just go ahead and do it. Um, I loved Gary as a kid. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I use that phrase, um, somewhat more cautiously now because, you know, talking about TV characters in that way, seems kind of, seems kind of weird. Uh, but I, I really loved <laughs> Gary as a kid and I really appreciate him now. I think because as a kid, I, I, even though he was a fictional character, I felt like in just the way that he was portrayed and written, I recognized he was a fellow old soul. Uh, like I felt like as a kid and still feel like, um, so I just appreciated that vibe of his, you know, he was, he was dorky, but he, at the same time, he was the leader. He was the leader of the pack. Um, so I just, you know, uh, Ross Hall, you know, thank you. <laughs> for your your years of dedication and 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 his words catching all of his awkward years and moments on camera uh for everybody to see uh thanks for doing that you know i loved you appreciate you uh but yeah gary's yeah. great i remember so oh, sorry i was going to go into a whole nother thing where uh i posted on facebook years ago that he was kind of like the cornerstone of you know uh kind of fanboying over a character you know he's a geek he's into books and telling stories and uh at the time that i posted this on facebook i had just started watching buffy the vampire slayer and it's like wow giles is like gary all grown up and i love giles for the exact same reasons also he's rupert on ted lasso giles is um Oh, really? And uh, Ross Hull is, had a YouTube channel. I don't think he really updates it anymore, but like probably like 10 years ago, he was kind of active on YouTube. And he mm. posted like documentary stuff, like going to conventions and meeting people who were big fans. And then he had like, you know, some of the people from the show from Are You Afraid of the Dark would come on and just kind of hang out. Like the guy who plays Tucker was on one. And then he did like these short films that were like, comedic representations of like you know being that guy that everybody recognizes from that kid's show and there's one where like a a waitress at a restaurant is like very horny for him and stuff so it's that kind of stuff but it's pretty it's a fun time go browse his youtube I, channel i think i shall so gary and tucker's grandfather has died under mysterious circumstances and as it so happens, it is serious as a heart attack to this serious as a heart attack. That's what callback grandpa Gene, grandpa Gene. Yeah. Grandpa Gene died from a heart attack because he was just so overwhelmed with fright uh, over what uh, some, some kind of uh, it, it is conveyed in the episode in a way you mentioned before like with slappy is it one of those things that was supposed to be played for laughs but um or was it meant to be serious and it just came off that way i really love uh sheena larkin um the actress who plays the grandmother i love her line reading when she's explaining to gary that her you know your grandfather died he wouldn't tell me what it was about but one thing he did say was that it had something to do with you. <laughs> and it was, 
it's like uh, she just choked with grief but the way it comes out was you know just the impression that that makes was she's basically saying in so many words i think you killed your <laughs> grandfather gary <laughs> gary's grandfather was trying to get a hold of him because something ominous is in the air and it has to do with the silver sight the silver sight is a charm uh, that was actually obtained by the original Midnight Society back in 1937, the same Midnight Society that Grandpa Gene was a member of. He was the Gary back in the days of the Depression, but that was already over, so I'm going to skip that reference. Uh, but Grandpa Gene was the original leader of the Midnight Society, and they obtained from a curio shop. And I can't help but wonder if it might have been Dr. Vink's curio shop or Sardo's curio shop. Who knows? Uh, this charm. And it has magical properties. But the original Midnight Society members came to find out that despite it having magical properties, wish-granting properties, as is so often the case in tales of this nature those wishes fulfilled come with a price and the wishes that it does grant uh kind of pale in comparison to the vengeance that this charm takes on whoever wields it whoever holds it so all the original members of the first midnight society have this charm fall into their hands with the exception of Grandpa Gene, if I remember. He remained pure throughout the whole uh, scenario. But nope. it kind of made the rounds with all the... No, it didn't? Oh, shit. <laughs> no, they, they address that in the at the, the end on the carousel. They ask Shandu guy, because he's like, we all took turns with this and it gave us all bad luck and we were greedy pieces of shit and gary gary or tucker is like except for grandpa gene right and shandu's like oh no he had his turn <laughs> oh wow i yeah that man that sailed over me makes you wonder what the hell he wished for then because uh in comparison to uh all the other society members you know one of them became a wealthy tycoon uh another one was like and it's kind of neat there are various chapters throughout the three episodes uh that speak to each original society member's success and downfall uh, and they basically have chapter titles so we have the tycoon uh whose wealth evaporated just as quickly as it was gained and now her son and his family have to eke out uh an existence as subterranean socialites <laughs> in the sewers uh because they've just fallen from grace financially and socially we have the homecoming queen who was a high school beauty and had all the uh attention and attraction that that entails but then yeah she that's right she died in a car accident uh that involved another member of the original society uh we have the general who <laughs> seems to have been a very decorated military official uh and it appears that he had some accidents befall him because when we meet him he is in a wheelchair uh which we'll talk about in a bit because i had some notes about that 
And so let's see, we have the tycoon, the homecoming queen, the general, the riddle man who uh, had great success buying, purchasing an amusement park. He was one of the youngest owners of an amusement park. I don't know, in all of history, the area. Uh, uh, but he had a literal fall from grace uh, when he fell off a Ferris wheel. And that was one. And, and it's funny because we, we don't see a flashback to any of these things. They're just stories that are being told by these survivors or uh, relatives, descendants, whatever the case is. So we we don't see any of these things happen, you know, the car accident that befalls the homecoming queen. But I remember being genuinely creeped out by the story of what happened to the riddle man, how he fell or was pushed by someone or something sinister. Because as his brother tells to the society members, there's no way that he could have fallen by accident. He knew the Ferris wheel better than a spider knows its own web. Uh, And I just remember finding that so horrifying. It was like one of those things that you hear whispered about on the playground at school. Like, you know, like when the carnival comes to town, it's like, Hey, don't go on the Ferris wheel. I heard a guy died when he fell from it. it. It had that same kind of, whispered urban legend feel to it and um and I, and I was a little nervy with heights as a kid uh so that just that anecdote i remember really kind of giving me a, a touch of the shivers yeah we just went on a tour of uh we have a wonderful subterranean system here in colorado springs called <laughs> cave of the winds so like uh, two weeks ago we went on a um haunted tour you know where they told all the ghost stories and one of them was kind of similar to that it was like uh there are these like stalactites uh those are the ones that hang down right stalactites uh that like there's some property about them where like you can hit them and they play like different notes like a xylophone almost um in order to get in get up to it you had to like climb up a ladder so one of the owners of these uh, caves would go up there and entertain the tours back in late 1800s, probably by, you know, banging out a little tune on these, uh, stalactites. And then in front of a full tour, he fell off the ladder and landed right on his head. But did he fall or was he pushed? Cause his last words mm. were, cause he lingered for like 10 hours after landing on his head oh, in the hospital. God. And the only thing he would say right up until the moment he died was i was pushed Mm, well so it's basically the same story yeah they are called cave of the winds so i can't help but wonder that he was just blown up i mean yeah he was just i i thought that was gonna take a, a slightly more horrific and um you know, tropey uh, direction in that uh, he was going to fall on a stalagmite, <laughs> the ones that come up from the ground into like Final Destination fashion. Uh, so, at the same time, that I'm glad to hear that that didn't happen. Ten hours is really rough, yeah. and that's sad. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's that. I think that may be worse actually. But in any case, so yes, all the original society members, none of them um, dead from stalactites or stalagmites, but all in various stages of misfortune 
because they dealt with this silver sight, which has gone missing. But what actually happened was that it was hidden by one of the society members. Uh, there are t- there's talks of a traitor in the group who was using the the charm, I guess, well past its okay. This is a bad idea stage. Um, I mean, I I don't know. I guess after the first the first round or two rounds of misfortune, you think it kind of would have sunk in with everybody else, but I guess that's just the folly of that first group of society members was that they, they gave in to their greed and, uh, and avarice. <clears throat> and that touches on um, something that I appreciated about this, uh, this story being told. I, I do like uh, stories that deal with generational horrors. I would say, you know, probably the archetypal one, at the modern level is probably it by Stephen King. You know, that would probably be most people's touchstone, but I, I like the idea uh, that, you know, cause there's something to be said about a, an, an odyssey esque story where it's kind of this big, strong hero who's going out and encountering the thing to be defeated. And maybe there's some tur there's some toil, toil and turmoil that comes with that, you know, and trying to defeat the thing. But at the end of the day, they still do it on the first go around. But I think there's um, kind of a note of emotional depth that comes with a story like this, where we're dealing with generational horror um, in that it's essentially telling us that we already had a, a singular or a group can you hear children crying from my end? Sure can. Oh boy. Creepy, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a little terrifying. Hold that thought. Or he needs to find his binky. We all do. I appreciate stories of generational horror that basically tell us uh, we've already had our first round of heroes and they failed. So now it's up to you person or plural persons to face this abomination this monster and see if you can do any better i don't know i just kind of like the emotional heft and urgency that comes with that kind of story what about you um never thought about it before so probably i guess (laughs) don't care all right Good to know. It's funny though because the way that all this because there's also did you talk about the the record pieces yet? Nope. The I've barely touched on anything. The um the way that we get all this exposition about the first midnight society and the uh, cursed item that they got from a trinket shop or whatever is that when Gary is at his grandmother's house after he's going over there to console her um, after Grandpa dies and she's like he wanted you to have this and she hands him a piece of a record that says uh listen to the music or something like that 
Um, and he looks at it, and it's like, oh, a clue. And you're like, aha. So the entire series is going to be, or not series, but this three-part episode is like, all he has is this one little tiny clue, and he's got to figure out this whole big mystery. And that's what these next three episodes will be. And then his grandmother is like, oh, also, we wanted to have you to have this. And she hands him like the whole ream of paper with all this writing on it, explaining all the stuff about the silver sight. That's like, oh. I guess they needed to to cut some corners there. <laughs> we only have three episodes of yeah, twenty minutes like each, we so only have uh, so much time. Exactly. Here's five episodes worth of material backstory. So, <laughs> yep. Here's the show bible. There you go. Oh, but anyway, I was what I was saying about the record pieces is like they have to. That's part of their the mystery is that they have to collect this record, which was shattered into I think seven pieces. Possibly less, I don't remember. But they have to go and find all the different record pieces so that they can uh, assemble the record back together and then listen to it, um, which is really uh, fun. I like stuff about old-timey clues. Did you see Evil Dead Rise? No, and I didn't even see the um, Evil Dead remake that came out uh, oh so many years ago. Okay, well... For the... Pretty yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did see that one. I don't remember it that well. Um, but you don't have to see that one to see the Evil Dead Rise because it's kind of a, a sort of a non canonical sequel in the sense that it doesn't really reference mm-hmm. anything in the first three movies, but it's just the same concept. But anyway, that has a really fun, creepy sequence of um, playing like the way that the, the uh, Necronomicon is read aloud and the demons get summoned. Is because the kid, one of the kids in the high rise apartment, um, is like a analog, you know, hipster like making music DJ, and he gets he finds the old uh, record, these old records in the basement, like after the or the parking garage because there's an earthquake, and then like the part of the garage caves in, and they find this old shrine, uh, so he finds the records in there, and he's like playing them through his you know, Beats by Dre headphones, and it's, like, really creepy, and, like, the sound is super, uh, you know, like, staticky, and it's, like, hard to hear anything. It's really, it's, like, probably the best part of the movie. It is January 24th in the year of our Lord, 1923. And I, Father Marcus Littleton, shall now commence reading aloud the first of the spiritual resurrection passages. Kanda. the atmosphere of like a clue be, or the instrument of your destruction being contained on because it wouldn't be the same if it was a cd or you know whatever right and uh that is an element that i really enjoy i like um i like m- when there's a mystery element to the story that is tied to some kind of artifact mm-hmm. 
uh, I really don't know how else to describe it. And even more still, I don't even know of another example to give, but uh, I, especially in the case of Tale of the Silver Sight, uh, it is essentially like a scavenger hunt combined with a jigsaw puzzle. We have to find all these pieces so that we know where to go from that point. And the pieces are scattered to the winds. Every surviving uh, member of the original group, which I think there's only the one, the general is the only living member left. Uh, everybody else is either a relative or um, connected to the society member in some way. Uh they're scattered to the wind so each piece is in the possession of these various people so the current day midnight society that would be uh season six midnight society paired with gary of course have to break off into teams to try to track down these remaining record pieces um and there's a really there's another really cool element um that DJ McHale does with his story and that we get what I, I wrote it as between the three episodes, we're getting essentially a choose your own adventure story where we get to see all the various paths and how they cross. Um, almost kind of, would it be fair to compare it to kind of like Pulp Fiction where it's yeah. a narrative where you, you see one character's exit uh, and that leads into somebody else's thread. And then when we go back in time, you kind of see that same moment from the other person's perspective. Like, I don't know what you'd even call that, you know, kaleidoscopic <laughs> storytelling. Yeah, there's a term for it. I forget what it is because people often refer to that as like Pulp Fiction. They call it an anthology, but it's not technically mm. anthology because it is the same characters, just like nonlinear in terms of the way their story is told. Uh, I wish I could remember. I can't tell you, but I, yeah. I thought... Cause I, so I should confess the way that I watch this, because like I said, I don't think it's commercially available anywhere. Um, is mm. I just watched it on YouTube. Somebody has uploaded the episodes Ooh. and, um, I thought that they had just messed up in the way that they uploaded it because it kept like replaying these scenes over and over. And like, it goes to like the end of the first episode has the kid running in and grabbing the drawing. And then the next episode is like, you find out like they play the scene and I didn't realize it was like a flashback. Well, not a flashback, but like, I didn't realize this was the earlier scene where he goes to the junkyard and the guy tells him to go get the drawing. And I'm like, wait, didn't that happen in the first episode? Did they just like, for copyright reasons, did they like jumble up the order of these episodes? Right. <laughs> uh, so it took me a minute to realize, oh no, that's just the way they're done. And it is a very cool, like, um, I guess innovative is not the right word, but it is a cool non-standard way to tell the story for a Nickelodeon show, which you kind of expect to be like A, B, C, D, the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was wondering too, if, you know, which kind of like a chicken and the egg situation, which came first was, was the thought to approach the story in that way in DJ McHale's mind initially, or was that born out of um, like, 
technical necessities, I guess. It could also just maybe be that they realize that every if they were doing it as three episodes, every episode needed to have its own like climax. So in the first episode, you have Tucker uh, getting attacked by like all the suits of armor and stuff, but technically that happens after the story that we see in episode two. So maybe it was just like writing on a chalkboard, like here's the climax of every episode and then just like re like structuring it to try and figure out like, even if these don't occur in this order in a linear sense, we can maybe tell the story so that, you know, this part that happens later than episode two is the climax of episode one, three groups of kids. There's probably, I'm thinking that they're all paired up, but only those two, I don't know any of their names either because <laughs> I didn't watch season six. Um, Alicia Cuthbert is from care. 24 is in there before, you know, getting caught in a cougar trap. So you were aware of the, the season six cast because you had been watching it all through? No. Oh, um, okay. I, I don't, yeah, no, I don't think that I was keeping up with season six really at all. I just know for a fact that um, I definitely was there on April 2nd, 2000 <laughs> to see the tale of the silver site. Um, so I didn't, yeah, I didn't have any personal investment in uh, any of these society members necessarily. So how do you, how do you feel that it worked? Like, do you think it would have been mm. a better story if it had been all of the kids from seasons one through five i mean they would have been the stakes i guess would have been a little bit lower because they would have all been college age by that time but right i think just like um, personality wise because yeah uh, i felt like the, again this was my first experience or not first but like barely remembering them they did all feel pretty archetypal like you know the yeah. fat kid the pretty prissy popular girl the tomboy you know it was like i can mm -hmm. slot these all into categories pretty neatly and they never really like subverted those expectations with their personalities so i, I feel like maybe the the original midnight society was a little bit more well-rounded and maybe i would have been slightly more interested in their their exploits i don't know how did you feel i think so they and and that was kind of something that um I think I was kind of alluding to when I was talking about the first five seasons and just how the feel of those episodes um, differs in a lot of ways from season six and seven, where in a way it, it kind of, like I said before, season six and seven feels like it was more kind of mainstreamed in the way that the stories resembled kind of more uh, facetious, uh, kind of more facetious fears that you'd see in things like Goosebumps that kind of had that, you know, poppy sheen to them in some ways. Uh, and same for the, the cast that comprised the, the Midnight Society. They, they seem so disparate there doesn't seem to be like a core of friendship uniting them in the way that you saw amongst the the kids from the first five seasons. Uh, those kids all seem like they genuinely knew each other. Um, the kids 
who make up season six and seven's Midnight Society, they seem like, like you said, they really are just checking the boxes off, you know, from central casting. It's like, okay, I need a, all right, great. There's one. And I need a, okay, great. We got that. And all right, let's go. And it's just, it's hard to imagine that any one of them would be hanging out with each other. And, you know, even Tucker, uh, I guess as a result, he feels so out of place amongst them. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. There's there's not a feeling of brotherhood. Yeah, and I don't know, again, having not seen those, I don't know if they had, because there were still like ongoing kind of like hints of storylines for the Midnight Society in the first five seasons. Like you knew who liked who mm-hmm. and were they ever going to get up the courage to ask him out? And, you know, there was like, yeah. and uh, Gary's got this little brother that he's got to learn to get along with walkie walkie. Um, and I don't know if, I don't know if they had as much depth. I mean, depth is a weird word to use considering those were like two minutes of the f- episodes, but, yeah, but it's still, mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know how, I don't know if that was handled well later on or if they all just were mechanisms to deliver the story and that was all. I think they might have been. Um, I can't say with absolute certainty myself because, again, I'm not rewatching any of those episodes when I take my DVD set out. Insofar as strangers getting together to do this professional thing and then depart and never see each other until they have to come back and do that thing again. You know, they just exude this sense of family and brotherhood. It's just, you know, it seemed like everybody was having a great time. Whose mystery solving storyline would you say was your favorite? Whose mystery solving storyline was my favorite? Cause we had, I guess we could go ahead and recap what everybody's, and again, I don't know anybody's yeah. name, <laughs> and I and I really don't <laughs> oh, want to boy. refer to them by their <laughs> yeah. archetypes because that could be right. offensive. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, there's... let's look at their names right now. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I'm trying to remember what all happens in the first episode. It's just Gary and uh, Tucker going to the generals, the general that used to be in the Midnight Society and like fought in whatever war. I guess World War Two with their grandfather, right? They go there and they find out what he um, knows, and then Tucker has to return there later for something. I forget what already, and that's when he has to. That's when he gets attacked by all the suits of armor and stuff. Yeah, which was a sequence I really like. So what happens is, uh, yeah. At the point in the episode in which we see it, an unknown assailant breaks oh, right. into about yeah that. breaks into uh, Grandma's house, and a couple of things that I really like about that sequence: a, the assailant is wearing black leather gloves, <laughs> uh, which even before I got into Gialli, uh that was just something that I always liked. I don't know; it seemed both fashionable and sinister. Mm-hmm. Whenever you know the perpetrator of a crime had on those those cool black leather gloves, so same case for our assailants here. Uh, so I feel like there's kind of two callbacks to the greater pantheon of horror cinema. Uh, first, we get the black leather gloves, a nod to the Gialli. There's probably not though, of course, just a, you know just an aesthetic choice, whatever. Uh, but I also love 
and and here in the episode it's not quite the same thing that i enjoy but it's close enough where we have the shot where it's basically a pov from the assailant's perspective and grandma walks into the room and she sees the assailant so she's looking at the camera and she's like oh who, who are you what do you want the assailant is uh is masked so she can't tell who it is that's not it's not quite the thing that i love what i love you especially see this in slasher movies which are not necessarily my go-to favorites Same. but a trope that i always yeah a trope that i always like in them you see like i think this happened maybe I don't know, 20 times in the first Friday, the 13th movie, but I love it. Nonetheless, it's when you have the camera's point of view is the killers. And then the would be victim comes into view, sees the, you know, unseen to us uh, killer because the camera is, Oh boy. I feel like I'm doing a great job at explaining something very basic. The would-be victim walks into the shot looking at the camera and says, oh, hell, hello there, it's you. And then they get their throat cut. It's Yeah, the gradual it's, it's realization. Kind of yeah. No, I love that too. I love that when they, they're like, oh, oh, you scared me. Huh. What are you doing here at this time of night? Oh, no. Yeah, and they're what, like giving What are you doing? Mayhem. No, no. And then they get killed. <laughs> Yeah. And of course they're giving no indication. They're not saying names. Yeah. You know, so it's it's kind of hokey. It's kind of hokey <laughs> in that way. It's like, "Oh, it's you." Yeah, uh, and uh this is going to sound like a joke, but I mean it sincerely. I also like the fact that um we get to see like the old woman getting menaced in this movie because uh I feel like getting <laughs> stalked by a killer in horror movies is like such a young person's game usually. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, go yeah. grandma, you run. <laughs> you throw that laundry basket over your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, and the, that's an, those are two other things I love about this sequence. She doesn't call the police, she calls her grandsons, which is a total grandma move. Yeah. Uh and apparently while he's know, still while the assailant is still in the house. <laughs> Still in it the would house. Be one thing if he, he had gone and then she called them, but yeah. So, oh, I didn't even think about that. So she's like potentially endangering them. You know, it's like come rescue me. It's like Grandma, does he have a gun? Can you tell us anything about what we're walking into here? <laughs> oh, I just know that he's got you know a piece of cloth over his face and black leather gloves. It's like oh, I don't know if I really want to venture into <laughs> what what am I getting myself involved in here. Um, but yeah, a couple other funny things about that. When Gary gets the call from his terrified grandmother, the next shot you see is him and Tucker running to her house. The call that he gets is in his dorm room at his college. So it's like, oh, I don't know. I guess it's possible that this is a college town and grandma just happens to live right down the street. <laughs> But it's, you know, one of those things you don't realize until you look back at it. Like, wait, they ran all the way from the college to grandma's house. And, you know, they're like, they're not dropping a, an ounce of sweat. They're not panting their lungs out. They're just like, hey, what's up? What's going on? It's like, wow, wow. <laughs> you know, maybe grandma's a faculty member. I don't know. Uh, so there's that. But then um, when you when you see them go downstairs to kind of survey the destruction that this assailant has wrought in an attempt to find the silver site or the record piece. I can't remember which 
uh, it's like, oh, she she actually makes a comment. Look at my beautiful house. And there are like a handful of linens on the floor, some clothes on hangers that have been kind of rifled. The books are askew. And that's it. That's it. That was that was the grand search for this charm, which was just kind of vaguely moving things on shelves and racks. Yeah. And uh, Grandma also has that, like, transatlantic accent or whatever, where it's like, I can't tell if she's she's putting on this, like, almost British, but not quite accent that she has yeah yeah and it's it is an odd one it's like mm, it's i don't know maybe that's just her voice you ever think about that eric i you know what she's welcome to it i just (laughs) thought it was classy and perhaps affected but you know she's allowed she's had enough trauma in her life Her, her 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 mute daughter died you know five seasons earlier it's terrible and she you know apparently that's a reference to the lonely ghost but anyway um and then yeah the i said earlier that the general guy who they're going to for information about uh the silver site and the original midnight society is the guy who's played by shandu the magician and um he's very you know you just like your grandfather, except for that slouch, you know, very, uh, very militant, you might say. And he's got the room full of military paraphernalia. And uh, uh, when Tucker gets trapped in the room and then all this, the, there's like medieval suits of armor. There's like samurai armor. Um, there's like a, like revolutionary war uniforms, it looks like. Uh, but they left out the, uh, I was like, let's be real here. This guy has a lot of, uh, Confederate army paraphernalia too, but, uh, they don't seem to be showing that. No. Yeah. No Nazi regalia here. Sorry. We <laughs> skipped that time period, even though that's the war I fought in. I did not, I did not maintain any souvenirs. Sure. Yeah. That's in the back room. <laughs> Speaking of hokey though, I do always think it's funny when somebody like, the idea of suits of armor getting possessed, it always makes me think like, well, what would the ghost do to intimidate Tucker if this guy didn't have this giant room of suits of armor? Like if he was just like a beanie baby collector or something like it's just very fortunate that they can make such a big display of their haunting by because because this this setting that they're in just happens to have all of these inherently frightening man-shaped things that they can inhabit. Well, let's, let's be honest here though. And I know we ha- we, I literally mentioned him at the top of my plot description and we ne- we haven't brought him up since, but the waif kid who, okay, mm-hmm. folks, you see, you see this kid, you know, he's up to no good. He looks like a Dickensian urchin, uh he's kind of capering about making very cryptic statements or just kind of lurking in the background in a very you know michael myers type fashion looking uh, ominously on at our at our beleaguered heroes you know he's up to no good and as it's so as it turns out yep he's a demon he's the demon associated with the silver sight uh, so the reason I say all that is to say, to kind of give credit where credit is due, 
he is an engineer of fear kind of in uh the same way as pennywise is so he is just an artist using the materials that are at his disposal so if it was like a haunting i would yeah i would be a little more skeptical of it like you know really these ghosts are dressing up in suits of armor and and having a time of it but i just see it as this playful little demon kids way of like hmm i see something that i can do with these and i really do love that sequence um it's a lot of fun it reminds me of two other staples of my childhood um one of them is the first mortal kombat movie um just for the way that uh, at the end there when Liu Kang is facing off with Shang Tsung, Shang Tsung resurrects the spirits of uh, like the greatest warriors of earth. So you see them like crash through, you know, the greats. So one of them is dressed as a samurai, you know, this guy's got swinging blades. Um, So just the kind of speaking to the, the variety of warriors uh, that it kind of put me in mind of that, but especially what it reminded me of, and this is probably something that you might not uh you might not know off the bat did you ever see dragon the bruce lee story no no so it is a biopic um starring jason scott lee are you at all familiar with that actor from the 90s he was in the look yeah he was in the live action version of the jungle book from the 90s that had Carrie oh, okay. El- Elwes and Steve it. Summers. Was that Steven Summers? Oh yes, okay, I recognize him. Yeah, that yeah. was his like event that was like before, you know, the mummy and all that. Oh wow. Oh wow. That kind of blows my mind because I'm a I wouldn't go so far as to say as I'm an apologist, but I am an admirer of Steven Summers pictures almost all of them i agree of the uh well i haven't seen odd thomas i think i gave up on him after van helsing (laughs) i must admit but i think the first two mummy movies are 10 out of 10 yeah i still i have a soft spot for van helsing but anyway wow that really blows my mind because i love that jungle book adaptation and i can see a lot of uh, a lot of him and uh in that movie but anyway jason scott lee dragon the bruce lee story it is a biopic one of the creative licenses that they take uh so far as i'm aware they kind of allude to a potential family curse um or at least just bad spirits that um his family is trying to keep at bay so they kind of i guess it's their way of kind of speaking to the mystery surrounding his death and um by extension well actually but at the time the movie was made i'm not sure brandon lee had actually died but anyway um the the bad juju uh the nightmare is manifested in that movie as this hulking samurai warrior that is faceless it is like a blank expressionless metal mask that he wears um and i saw that movie as a kid you know big bruce lee fan still am uh so i came for the martial arts i was completely traumatized by that hulking samurai warrior though uh and so there are echoes of his appearance 
in this sequence from Silver Sight because all of the uh, suits of armor, if they're not already wearing some kind of face covering like the uh, World War One soldier with the gas mask, uh, they just kind of have a black cloth oh, yeah. covering their face. So it's it's a really eerie phantom like appearance, and it just yeah gives me the uh, just gives me goosebumps from uh, my memories of the samurai demon from dragon the bruce lee story so that scene is kind of also indicative uh the one from the silver side i mean uh the armory battle uh that's indicative of another kind of strain of storytelling of dj McHale's that i've always appreciated in uh, a lot of the episodes he did for the series where there's this kind of strain of adventure running through the piece Mm -hmm. That doesn't hamper the kind of, you know, the more scary elements of it. Uh, I think it actually, the two complement each other just really well. So you can have a scene of like Tucker swashbuckling with these suits of armor, but it's both within the whole story, but within the scene itself, there's still kind of a scary um atmosphere to it there is a funny moment where he knocks down one of the suits of armor and you see it collapse to the ground and there's a human skull inside for right (laughs) it's like oh apparently the suits of armor were not the only souvenirs that the general (laughs) was collecting well you gotta get you have to have something in there so they keep their their form you know their shape yeah i guess so and that you know traditionally human skeletons yeah. serve that purpose that's 100 percent true listener you don't need to look it up they are really good at that um and that that gives the episode our money shots uh during the end credits as you may remember from are you afraid of the dark the end credits would always play over a still image usually usually the most frightening one from the episode so the the fallen soldier's uh tumbled skull is uh, is what we get at the end of part one of the silver sight uh so that's the first episode the second episode is <laughs> cutting back and forth between megan and quinn and uh quinn is going to a junkyard um gets chased by a ghost dog and he f- uh i don't remember who the junkyard guy is he knew the the prom queen homecoming queen who died in the car accident uh yeah he was her old flame so he was her first boyfriend he was the homecoming king and then she left him for another member of the midnight society i wonder who what was he in the midnight society the junkyard guy because no, he had a streak fact, of bad luck uh, himself so i wasn't sure if he was like a silver sight user or not well, it seems like the Silver Sight acts against anyone who is uh, in the perimeter of the person who is actually holding it, which is, I guess, why uh, the Tycoon's family is still suffering from the aftershocks, I guess you could say. That's why they're living in the sewers. So, yeah, he was her boyfriend at the time, and he, in his words, just had the worst run of bad luck imaginable he was a you know high school athlete and then he ended up breaking his leg so get this he broke his leg was in a car accident wherein he almost quote unquote bought the farm 
and then his <laughs> and then his house went up in flames and he once again barely escaped with his life it's like man any one of those would have been just enough to like sell sell us on the fact that the the charm is a bad luck charm yeah maybe they maybe none of them were caused by this silver sight maybe he just was a bad driver right. uh an incompetent athlete and uh did bad wiring on his house or whatever you got at some point you really <laughs> got to start looking on you know towards the inside and then uh, this is cross cut with megan um yeah finding these people in the sewer who are descendants of rich people but then their stuff got taken away from them it's very i wasn't sure if i was like off put by the weird mix of like grotesque comedy and horror or if i was like living for it you mean like uh the the crazy socialites in the sewer yeah who are like the not all of the the little not little boy but the son in the family is dressed like a normal late 90s teenager yeah. but the daughter is like in the full uh like frilly dress with a bow in her hair like she's in a rich family in the 1940s or something yeah she looks like she's ready to fall down the rabbit hole those are those guys are kooky huh oh yeah the parents they're they you know they're they're uh definitely digging their heels into yeah kooky socialite i feel like that was kind of a thing in the 90s because i remember there was also the like the American, like the the nuclear family, like the 1950s American dream kind of family got satirized so much in the 90s because that also happened on like Erie, Indiana yeah. and stuff like that. There was just something in the air that I guess maybe baby boomers growing up and being like, you know, after the Nixon administration, we can't look at that version of America the same way anymore. Now it just seems kind of silly and frivolous or something. I don't know. Yeah, that could explain a blast from the past. Uh, yeah, that too. <laughs> Starring good old Brendan Frazier. Um, so, yeah, one of the things you mentioned uh, with Quinn in the junkyard is that he's getting chased by a, a ghost dog. Black dog. It looks like it could be a Rottweiler. I just have to laugh, especially in modest productions like these, you know, relatively modest productions. It's a TV show for kids. Um, and even, you know, adult entertainment anytime. I don't know, maybe the trainers have gotten better or something, but I feel like especially <laughs> in this time period and earlier, anytime a dog was supposed to be made to look threatening, it just came off looking really goofy and friendly <laughs> instead. And and the one here certainly does, especially during like its second appearance, it actually pops up right behind Quinn. And it's not like a, you know, a big jump scare reveal. It's just kind of like the dog is just sitting there waiting, waiting to be noticed. And Quinn kind of turns around. He's like, huh? And then the dog starts jumping up in a completely non-threatening way. Like he's clearly asking for treats or for a ball to be thrown. But Quinn has to like run like, ah, <laughs> this vicious Rottweiler, yeah. uh, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, dogs are cute. What are you going to do? Hey, they are the cutest. They can't help it. They really cannot. Something else with Quinn uh, that, gave me a laugh and kind of a different way was uh i don't know i i don't i don't want to make assumptions because you know what they say about assumptions but 
in a way, I mean, sometimes it just seems like dialogue is being written. to fit um you know the character as it were or the the actor portraying the character um i don't know and it it was all and it was the the particular moment that i'm referring to it i think it also was the way in which the lines were spoken that seemed kind of hackneyed um where i was thinking to myself and again not to well not to like glorify the the cast members from the first five seasons to judgment day but i i was like asking myself now if that were frank would that have felt so awkward uh and and like you know cringy but you know the the scene where towards the end of the first episode where Gary is gathered with all the midnight society members around the campfire. And they're all like, okay, here's the deal. We need to re- get these record pieces, destroy the silver site and boom back home in time for supper. Uh, Quinn is the one who's kind of like the voice of reason or, or I should say, or at least the voice of trepidation, like guys, we just tell scary stories and this is, you know, really serious things we're talking about here, you know, possibly breaking and entering and, you know, getting involved in who knows what. So he's, you know, the cautionary voice during all this, but he's finally won over at the end and he expresses his commitment to the cause (laughs) by going up to Gary and he's like, look, if this thing gets nasty, you're going to need me. Which... Again, I don't want to assume <laughs> stuff, but I don't know. It it just feels weird saying it, but I'm just gonna spit it out. It's like I don't, guys. Is it like is it the fact that he's black supposed to signify that he has experience dealing with tough things in his life, and <laughs> you know he, he gives that you know the street cred vibe off of like, look, if. If shit goes down, because this is basically what he's saying is like, look, Gary, if this if shit goes down, you're gonna need somebody who's been around the block and who has seen this kind of thing once or twice. That's essentially what he's saying. And then how do they seal the deal? Like Gary's like, you know what? Okay, thanks for contributing to the cause. And they give a little handshake. They have a nice little handshake at the end there. It's like, you know, a little bit of a all right, thanks, man. Thanks, bro. Mm-hmm. but he didn't shake anybody else's hand like that. You know, <laughs> like I said, I don't want to assume things. I'm sure it was completely innocent or just, you know, ignorant. <laughs> just it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. It feels different these days watching something like that. I guess that's the only way I can put it. It feels a little different. Am I crazy? I mean, um, you're you're laughing. I assume you're you were thinking the same thing. It's like, uh, really? But you know, help me out here. I think you are interpreting the text correctly. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's funny because it usually you don't get that vibe from uh, "Are You Afraid of the Dark," which you know, it's yeah. not like this is the first black character that's ever been on "Are You Afraid of the Dark." Like they've had storylines with entire black families uh, that are just written yeah. like any other episode. And they, you know, there was a yeah, uh, Kiki great. from the first lineup. Was that her name or am I being racist now? 
um i actually don't know i i don't remember but i i knew who you were talking about i'm gonna anyway. look it up so that we can uh edit it so that i don't seem like a terrible person <laughs> yes her name is kiki yeah. Uh, anyway yes, but there yeah. was never any the first, there was never any like first... jive handshake moments in in other episodes um so you yeah. do sort of wonder yeah just trying to be hip i guess i don't know i don't know like i said stuff happens it's you know nobody died you know let's not get too crazy about this but at the same time it's like oh that hits different <laughs> that hits different yeah, well, I'm glad you brought it up because I was definitely thinking that. But I was like, do I even want to get into that? Yeah, I, I know. know. Yeah, it's the whole thing. But <laughs> hey, we said our piece. We're moving on. Um, totally random note about just the Midnight Society in general. Um, like I said, with the these two seasons, six and seven, I don't know. Did they have better filming equipment? You know, were they using some kind of different stock? But the image is, you know, clearer in a way, I think. Uh, which I think is kind of nicely in keeping with the first five seasons, just because, like I said, the tone, the vibe there is so much more rustic and, you know, homey. Uh, whereas, you know, six and seven are going for like the sleek look of the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, but that means the picture is so much clearer where I feel like I more readily uh, re- um, notice things like the couch, the couch that they have, as part of the midnight society campfire gathering, I see it in the silver site. And it's like, it just struck me that, wow, they have a couch out there in the middle of the woods as part of their, you know, midnight society, their nightly gatherings. That thing must be mildewed as shit. And they're just hunkering down on it, meeting in, meeting out and it's like, oh, no, it's fine. I mean, do they re- do they just go thrifting every two months and replace it with another one? I'm just like, because this is Canada. And, you know, I don't know if it like rains there like it does in the Pacific Northwest, which it looks like it could just as readily be. But I'm like, oh, my God, that couch in the middle of the woods just seems like a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah, the couch. And then there's also a rolling chair that... uh Oh, I didn't see that. I think I think Andy is sitting in a rolling chair, like an office chair <laughs> that does not look comfortable. Yeah, I guess you got to make do. Uh, this was a quote that I, I wrote down as being just kind of, you know, worth a chuckle. You were talking before about, you know, the, the broken up pieces of the record. And it's like, oh, I kind of like when they give nods to older forms of media, you know, this kind of tactile artifacts, like I was calling them. Gary uh says a line that has aged very well where you know he's explaining that they need to retrieve the piece the pieces of this record and like somebody you know voices a question like a record you know what do you mean and gary's like well you know they didn't have things like cassettes or cds back then (laughs) and if you were to play this episode to you know a, a tween or a teen now they would have been like what the fuck is a cassette or a CD? Like you just mentioned two <laughs> other things that I don't know. Yeah. I feel like cassettes though are, are right on the verge of making the same comeback that, really? that uh, vinyl has made. I feel like it, I might be misreading our, our, uh, um, not social environment, but mm. you know, the, the stage at which we are at of the nostalgia cycle. 
we already summarized episode one and two, I will say. The the last episode is yeah. Andy and Vange or Vang. I'm not sure how her name is pronounced, but I just looked up a, a list of all the members. So oh, the wow. tomboy one with the hat. Yes. Um they they go off to the amusement park to meet up with the brother of the guy who fell out of the Ferris wheel who owned Playland is what it's called. Yes. And his address is listed in the phone book as 15 Playland Place. Uh, so they get their that. clue from him. And then it culminates with everybody getting together, putting the record back together, putting all the clues together, because there's like a poem that was written across these five pieces of the album that uh, adds up to like, know who your true enemy is. And then they go to the carousel, the general is there, the demon child is there. And Gary has to make a choice about, like, who is the true enemy? Is it this general guy who was betraying everybody in the society? Or is it this child who has done nothing but play mischievous demonic pranks on everybody throughout the first three episodes? Like, make them think Tough they're call. about to get hit by a train. Yeah, it yeah. is a little, it's a little easy to figure out who Gary should uh, say the enemy is. But it's a show for kids, I guess. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I remember being genuinely thrilled uh, and caught up in the suspense of the whole, the, uh, the whole special, if you want to call it that, the whole three episodes, um, each twist and turn, you know, I, 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 I was the proverbial viewer on the edge of their seats. I, I just loved the whole mystery aspect to the story. Um, let me ask you this regarding our good friend, the general. Um and like I like I warned at the beginning, we're going to be spoiling some things here, but I really do want to get Eric's input. What did you think about that reveal regarding the general? Um, which reveal? Sorry. The reveal that the general, who we have previously seen in a wheelchair, can in fact walk. Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> well, first of all, the place in which that was revealed didn't make a lot of sense because no. that's when Megan goes down into the uh, sewers for the second time to meet up with the family of um, subterranean, you know, ex-socialites. And he's there in his wheelchair. Uh, and then, and then they reveal that he can stand up and walk and you're like, well, then why did he bring that down there in the first, <laughs> that uh seems cumbersome. Yeah, just, um, just but also it reminded me of uh, it reminded me of certain projects that uh, we've maybe collaborated on in the past together. Oh, you don't say! It's funny. I had completely forgotten about that until you just mentioned it. Oh, that makes me nostalgic for Markham now. <sighs> Damn. Well, I don't. I, I don't. Um, I don't think. To, well, here, here's saying. Here's saying something. I don't think that uh maybe my memory's sketchy i feel like for as silly as uh the general's reveal in the silver sight was um our reveal that our character could in fact walk was probably not any better um and the fact that we were writing for adults i mean you can see that shit coming a mile away i mean we've all <laughs> seen hush we've all seen hush right we know i haven't is that my again no i <laughs> No, I I haven't either. No, it was um it was a thriller from the late nineties. What I want to say, Nicole Kidman's in it. Um, 
but yeah like the big reveal was <laughs> like the the kind of like creepy matriarch of the family you know she's rolling along and then towards the end just like the general you see her stand up and oh my god she could walk <laughs> the whole time look out she's the killer i have no idea what the movie's about i just know that there's a movie called hush from the late 90s and somebody who we previously thought did not have use of their legs did in fact have use of their legs so there you yeah. go there's also the x-files episode with uh, ricky J. oh Hey, look at that. So clearly this is a trope that has <laughs> been played out, especially man in the nineties. Everybody was doing it. Jesus. Crazy, there's no crazy, I don't crazy. see why there's um, any reason to not bring it back with our novel. Yeah. Yeah, right. We'll get back to that in a while. I will say the in defense of ourselves, um, I don't think we we I don't think we um uh, positioned it as this big mind-blowing reveal. I think it was just kind of already sure. suspected from the very beginning by our our smart detective character Alan Markham. So, see, we were we were playing into the trope. Yeah, exactly. We, we knew what. Yeah, yeah, we knew what was going on. We know our history. Um, potentially fun fact about the general. Um, I, I couldn't help but notice as the episode was playing that his last name is candle and based on how it's mm -hmm. spelled on imdb it's just spelled like the you know the word candle oh. um but in the one credits of the creators of are you are you afraid of the dark um on imdb yeah it's spelled candle like the candle that you light but one of the creators of are you afraid of the dark is a uh, ned candle um so I was wondering if that was a nod from DJ McHale to his uh, his co-founding member of the series. Yeah, a nod or else they had a different name and they couldn't get the rights to it. And they were just like, uh, 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 Candle, you know, you look to the guy. <laughs> they were looking around, yeah, looking around the prop room. Okay, there <laughs> it is. Great, let's move along. Um, speaking of move along, this, you know, the action in these three episodes kind of moves along pretty speedily. Do you think that um, the story arc would have benefited by being a little bit longer? Like if it was, you know, something more akin to a mini series as opposed to, you know, a, a roughly 90 minute special. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, yes. Uh, part of that was again, what we were saying about not feeling like the characters had any that much depth. Uh, but then again, I guess if you have a whole TV show leading up to it, maybe I just missed out on something, but yes, I think it would have been, uh, I think it would have benefited from having some more time to flesh out the story and to, you know, not take some of the shortcuts that they took in the solving of the mystery, um, and allowing it just yeah. to be a little bit more atmospheric. Uh, which was, I feel like I'm only saying bad things about this, this whole episode. I actually, I did enjoy it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun the way yeah. that it, like within the confines of what it set out to do, I think it did it pretty well. Um, but I think it's hard not to look at it through the lens of how it might unfold nowadays where, you know, it might be three hour long episodes or whatever. Right. Like, uh, I think the, I could be wrong about this. I think the reboot that they did. Ah, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I was going to say I think maybe the new "Are You Afraid of the Dark" seasons are hour-long episodes, but I think I'm incorrect about that. 
Well, see, um, that's kind of where my question was going in a way, because I only watched the first season of the reboot. Um, so I did get a sense of like what that version of storytelling would look like. Uh, let's see, four, four seasons. Oh, good for them. Keep it up. Uh, they are, uh, 44 minutes. Yeah. Okay. And they are, cause I think that first season was, was like three episodes, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was three episodes. So yeah, even just a little bit longer, like that length, I felt like that was a, that was a nice length to tell once, you know, one overarching story like that, if they, you know, if they weren't going to go the anthology route, like the original series, um, I, I felt like that was a good, that was a good pace for the story. It gave um, the characters enough breathing room um, while still allowing the, you know, the plot, the action of the story to unfold nicely. Yeah, I think I, I think the main thing is I would have liked to see more interplay between the characters, just to have a better sense of who they are. Mm-hmm. And um I also would not have minded, I mean, this might have just been a scheduling thing or whatever, uh, as opposed to a time issue, but I wouldn't have minded if, you know, the story took them through a path where they could weave through the lives of some of the old members of the Midnight Society and have them show up for a cameo or whatever. It would have been fun. Yeah, or even if, um, yeah, even if there were like more overt um, nods to previous episodes. And, you know, that's kind of like... I don't know, uh, a post scream slash millennial, uh, touch that probably gets overdone more than it needs to these days. Um, but you know, just little nods would have been fun. Um, I guess in a, well, I guess in a way DJ McHale kind of already did that with the tale of Cutter's treasure, because the whole premise behind that story being told was that it was a combo story being narrated by both Gary and Frank, uh, because the story featured their characters of Doctor Vink and Sardo. Um, but the the tag on the the tag on the very end of the third episode is the original Midnight Society, uh, you know, uh, wrapping this up as though this whole thing was just a story that they were telling back in the, what was it? Thirties or whatever. Um, 1937. Yeah. Which is fun, but it's also one of those things that make me go like, am I, how much am I supposed to think about what this means? <laughs> like, I know. Right. It, and it's, it's like, is this whole thing non-canonical or, well, not only that, but I like, I have questions like, how much detail was uh, you know grandpa gene telling this story like because <laughs> i just imagine him sitting there like so anyway after i had my heart attack my grandson <laughs> my grandson's tucker and gary it's like what the fuck are we supposed to <laughs> like were you forecasting the future like uh... or was the entire are you afraid of the dark canon up to that point? Just part of this, this one oh my ongoing God. No, I can't saga. Deal with that. I can't deal with that. It is, uh, the one, the one 
more you know less brain melting and the the more fun question that i had um as a result of that kind of cutesy you know final tag was you know i can't help but wonder is this how because you know it ends with uh, them putting out the fire and one of the society members asks gene you know do you think that's anything that could ever really happen to us and gene's like not you know not a chance or you know not you know not in, not in a million years put out the fire and walk not in a million years that's that's what it was not in a million years um so are we therefore led to assume that this is before the silver site comes into their possession and if that is the case was their telling this story the summoning right for this demon you know what i mean like were they like okay it's like you're getting too cute with the timeline there you're kind of tempting fate in a way so if you know you want to play those kinds of games with the universe then the universe is going to play some games with you and they have inadvertently by telling this story that's essentially forecasting their futures for all we know they have in turn summoned the demon to basically fuck with them <laughs> yeah or is it supposed to be like in back to the future where he does wind up having those kids in that whole life, but he just never thinks about it or whatever. Yeah. He's never like, Oh, this, this feels awfully like what I said was going to happen 20 years ago. in my, are you afraid in my midnight society story? <laughs> right. Maybe that's why he had the heart attack. He's like, Oh my God, I already <laughs> knew this was going to happen. Oh <laughs> uh, boy. What a world. Uh, I, I, Going back to our friend, the general, I'm just looking through my notes. I find it also, you know, talk about like frustrating things that were not answered, you know. So after Gary recognizes his true enemy and, you know, six, basically, he six the silver sight onto the demon in a way. Um, he says, you are my true enemy. And the silver sight floats out of his hand. And I don't know why, but that is like one little that is like one visual that is stuck in my mind from when I initially watched this, you know, decades ago, I always remembered that silver disc slowly rising from Gary's hand. It's almost kind of looks like one of the silver balls from phantasm, you know, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. And, the, and the blades. <laughs> uh, so, and the silver side explodes releasing the spirits of, all of the the poor souls that this demon has uh made its victims over the years by playing into their greed and and you know whatever their personal foibles are so the spirits are released and it really looks like the you know somebody on set was like release the spirit halloween spirits because you see all these these skulls and you know floating toilet paper garments just kind of fluttering around like oh it's like i appreciate that they went that route with it and you know you, you see them gradually you know transform into the nice people who are riding the carousel and kind of you know doing the little queen waves uh as they shuffle off to the afterlife so you know they do they do make up for it if you want to call it that but i appreciate that they start out as like total halloween haunted house ghosts uh, as they're floating around the demon and that sequence again indelible memory because we've been following you know this annoying little waif kid 
this guise that the demon has basically been wearing. But then once the spirits are released, he transforms into his true self. And guess what, friends? It's incredibly frightening because it's, uh, well, this, this literally just occurred to me that he, he's giving off, uh, Frank from Twin Peaks vibes and mm-hmm. his, in his, you know, in his transformed state, because he's basically, you know, a man, uh, which is just disturbing in of itself to see, you know, this little, like I said, Dickensian urchin transform into a man wearing those same clothes. And he's got this, you know, the long flowing gray hair and this angular nose, you know, uh, like I said, giving off Frank from Twin Peaks vibes. And then from there, he melts into a skeleton, basically, before he zaps away from this plane of existence. How do you feel about um, the the main monster villain or whatever of the three-episode arc being that little waif kid? Just as, like, just as, like, a monster? What do I feel like? Of... Uh, just as iconography? I don't know. There was... Times when I appreciated it and times when I thought eh, they probably could have done, even sticking with the little kid theme, they probably could have done something creepier. But I don't know if they were trying to pull it back for story reasons to set up the ending of like, but he turned out to be the villain the whole time. And like if he was more more of like a creepy little kid or like a little Lord Fauntleroy or, you know, a little little demon girl in a dress like the Toby Dammit girl devil. Um, maybe that would have tipped their hand too early, uh, but also he's kind of out of place anyway because of the way he's dressed and his his bad wig. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty bad wig. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm going to be an Amadeus Junior at my <laughs> at my <laughs> elementary school. Uh, I would say that I like it. Um, I enjoyed it initially when I w- saw this. Uh, saw this special as a kid just because it was genuinely surprising to me to a degree in that wow the little kid was the monster the whole time like that was genuinely surprising to me yeah um and i i I would say i'm not so uh i don't i don't take issue with his appearance too much i mean yeah it's a goofy wig whatever (laughs) i don't take too much issue with his appearance um, the performance at times is a little grating though, but I mean, I think it's kind of meant to be cause he's, he's like this capering mischievous demon who, you know, if it, he's essentially pulling pranks, <laughs> deadly pranks on all of our society members. So I feel like it's in keeping, you know, with, uh, with the character for him to be this kind of you know, just weird kid. Um, so I'm, I'm cool with it. All right. I'll allow it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as far as set pieces go. Um, what did you think about the, uh, the well scene? The what? Whale? The, the scene with the well where Vange is going down. Into oh, the well yes. Yes. I totally forgot that that happened in their episode. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was fun. I mean, I, I was watching it on, like I said, I was watching it on YouTube. It was a pretty low grade 
upload. So I was like, mm. I couldn't tell if there was something that you could see when the light was flashing in the well, or if it was just light flashing in the well. Uh, so that might have oh, okay. altered my perception of it. Um, but it was fun. I like the idea of a scary thing being in a well. That's a fun time. Yeah, that's a good time. Um, to answer your question of sorts. Uh, so it's not just the light uh, at the bottom of the well. In the best, you know, 90s special effects that they could muster. It, it's basically like a fog, a cloudy vapor that you do see like the impression of a face. Ooh. And nothing like clearly defined, but just enough to be like, you know what it kind of looks like? It looks like the kind of face that you would see on Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> it's, it's, okay, it's, well. It's, yeah, which I find horrifying. Um, sure. But I... I think it's a yeah. I think it's a great suspenseful set piece because you know you got the the claustrophobia of the well, the darkness of the well, working against you. Um, but then as she's you know pulling out the brick to retrieve the hidden record piece, here's this you know crazy phantom at the bottom of the well that is like boiling up towards her. And it's kind of growling at the same time. And there's what? What's his face? What's his name? Uh, hey, do you say? I think you Andy. Hey, Adam. Andy. 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 Uh, Andy is is trying to pull her up using the well rope, but it's stuck. Uh, I don't know. I just I love set pieces like that. Yeah, that was fun. Um, what you were saying about the aesthetic earlier, how it seemed to change from season five mm -hmm. to season six, I think I was feeling that a bit in terms of feeling like the whole show was just kind of like too bright. You know what I mean? So th I think there were parts of the show where yeah. I was like, this could be really creepy, but it just feels a little sterile, a little safe because of like the cinematography, mm -hmm. making sure that like there was like it felt a little over reassuring to me um so so that scene in the well to me is kind of an example of something that like conceptually i think it's really cool and it was a lot of fun and suspenseful but there was kind of part of watching it where it felt sort of like like plasticky and smooth and like you know yeah like i said that polished sheen yeah that millennium sheen. And again, I hate to be on. complaining so much about this because I did think it was fun. <laughs> it was a fun yeah, time. It was, it was a good adventure. Fun. It was a fun mystery. Yeah. Speaking of mysteries, one thing that goes unanswered, uh, I started mentioning this earlier and then of course, you know, lost the thread of it. But at the end, you know, Gary denounces the demon, demon vaporizes, um, and everybody's like, yeah, great job. We did it. Uh, and somebody says, oh, but what about him? And there's the general like sitting dejected at the carousel. And like Gary goes over and, you know, says, hey, it's it's all good. You know, we can go home now. Thanks for your help. And that's the line where you said he mentions, oh, you know, yeah, your grandpa uh, definitely took his turn, you know, took his turn with, with the silver sight. And then the general just saunters off. I really just wanted somebody to be like, um, so why were you pretending to be an invalid the whole time? <laughs> what, yeah. what was that about? Uh, he's like, Oh, sorry. I can't hear you. <laughs> okay. Bye. 
<laughs> I think it's just the fact that the wheelchair was in the sewer that really complicates the whole yeah. thing for me. Because there are people who are like not wheelchair bound, but who still get around a lot easier <laughs> in a wheelchair. So that's what I would assume he was, except that he took it into the sewer just for the element of surprise in case anybody should stumble upon yep. him. And stumble they did. It's a fun party trick to do the Willy Wonka, yeah. you know, I can't walk. Wait, yes, right? I can. It was also funny how, um, you know, and I guess, again, it's like, oh, it's it's kiddie entertainment. They're not going to, you know, care or pay close attention to this, which, you know, fair enough. I didn't when I watched it the first time. But, um, you know, it was, I think it was kind of cute how there was a whole dang reunion of everybody who was connected to the silver site who showed up at the carousel right as this this face off is going off. It's like, who called all of you? <laughs> like, OK, I'm glad you say that because I was curious if I missed something when there was just a cutaway and then all these people just like wander into frame almost by accident. <laughs> like what, where did they right. summon them for this pot potentially quite dangerous uh, exorcism thing they have to do? Yeah. Did they like just feel the supernatural pull <laughs> of the silver sight? Like it was unveiled and it was like the bat signal. It's like, the silver sight has been unveiled. We must go to the amusement park. Like they didn't even know it was there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it was cool seeing, uh, yeah. well, it would have, it would have been cooler seeing the original cast again. Sorry. S sorry. Season six, season seven cast, but you know, they're, they're kind of oceans 11 stroll through the nighttime fog. <laughs> as they go into the amusement park it's like oh yeah look at them all cool you hear the show's theme on the electric guitar it's like mm -hmm. oh yes i would have killed Iconic. i know i i, I really <laughs> oh it was so good i i i mean that theme in of itself is is great all by itself but hearing it on the electric guitar it's like god damn that rocks <laughs> that is so good yeah oh man but anyway we should probably wrap yeah. it up so let me yeah. ask you this um so here's an example of me being a fuddy-duddy and complaining some more. Uh, <laughs> so here's my question. Or I don't know if it's even really a question. It's more an observation about me and my inability to have fun with anything. Oh, cool. um, there's a part of me when you say that there's going to be an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark that brings the characters into a real-life supernatural mystery mm -hmm. that goes... That's really dumb. That sounds like bad fan fiction. I don't know. Should I just have that part of my brain removed, do you think? No, because um, I think I mentioned this before myself, um, especially when it's a property that has kind of made its name as an anthology. I get kind of ornery myself when you know, it gets revived or renewed, whatever you want to call it, rebooted. And people take, you know, the creatives take that approach with it. Uh, where it's like, well, you know, to take an example, are you afraid of the dark? You know, the last four seasons that it's apparently had, didn't realize it was up to that many. They've all been self-contained stories involved. And I don't know if the other three seasons involve the Midnight Society. I can't imagine that they do. It's possible, but I'm not going to look into it right now. Um, but they're all self-contained stories told over the course of like three episodes. 
um i get and which is apparently that is the modern day conception of an anthology tv show uh because i think i've mentioned this before american horror story before it was american horror stories i'm not actually sure if that one is what i would deem an anthology proper but before that you you know murder house asylum new orleans electric boogaloo whatever the third season was called coven there it is that uh, and anytime i would see that show mentioned during those years everybody called it an anthology tv show because oh it's a different story every season and i'd be like that's not (laughs) that's not what an anthology is it's a different story every episode is your is your question rooted in the anthology nature of the show or is that just kind of like a general is it just the fact that you know the whole real world scary stuff thing i think there's just something in me that resists uh but there's just something about about what fans want that i think so often runs completely contrary to what a work of art is trying to do as a piece of story or whatever um and people just want to hijack that for like well it would make me happy if let me try and think of a fandom like what if we had a star wars series where obi-wan was just really badass all the time let's give let's take that and then they do it and it's just like thematically uh, i haven't watched obi-wan i'm talking out of my ass here but the only memes I've seen being spread around it are like, wow, it's totally badass. And I'm like, but that's not the point of the Jedi. That's not the point of Obi-Wan as a character is to be a badass. There's there's something to the character that's about like, and about the Jedi philosophy in general, that's like, wars not make one great, remember? It's not about being badass and violent. And and taking Star Wars and fitting into this thing of like, but that's what I want to see. And then Disney does it. It just makes me go like, you don't even know what stories do. You just want your little sandbox action figures to play together in this dumb, juvenile, hedonistic. So that's kind of. 20 years ago when this movie when silver sight aired i didn't have all this baggage about completely giving fans all this wish fulfillment keys to the kingdom (laughs) and it is fun for a children's show to take these characters that you are invested in because they're telling the stories around the campfire and putting them in an exciting real life adventure mystery situation like that is fun but my knee-jerk reaction is like but that's not what the show is. That's not what it is. So, so like, yeah, maybe it's fun, but doesn't it kind of kill off something that made this series special when it was about the camaraderie between these, these teenagers who don't have anything binding them together. They don't have common interests. They don't have common friends. They're from different backgrounds. They might not even be in the same classes together, the same school together, but they have this common shared love of storytelling and that's what brings them together. And there's something beautiful and powerful about that. And then it's like, and then what if they saw a ghost? And it's just like, uh, but <laughs> but I think that Silver Sight is like the best version of that kind of thing. So it doesn't bother me in itself. Mm. But just conceptually, there's just something in me that's like, but 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 why does that have to be what it is? 
don't know. Does that make any sense? Uh, well, you seem to be sweating a lot. <laughs> I'm really worked up Which over think... this. <laughs> hey, uh, we've been up here in the treehouse for three hours now, so things are getting yeah. heated in all kinds of ways. I think that this is something that is not extremely new in the sense that like the example that I go back to, if you really want to talk about um, fan service, let's go back to Arthur Conan Doyle killing off Sherlock Holmes on Mm -hmm. the Reichenbach balls because he was done with writing about the character and then getting the deluge of hate mail from everybody saying i love these stories you can't possibly do this i feel like he was a real person and he's kind of like okay fine and he comes back for like two dozen more stories so i think the urge for those kinds of things is is not new um as you can just tell me that i'm an idiot it's fine no it's not that um i I think it's just speaking to, I just, I think it's speaking, because it sounds like I'm defending this across the board and I'm not, I I guess I'm just trying to understand it. I think it's just a human need that in spite of what our logic or the logical side of our brain tells us that, you know, this is just a made up world with fake characters, the, you know our emotional side of the brain kind of holds the logical one hostage and, you know, makes us feel like, Oh, but I, I want to see this. I want, I want to know more about these people. I want to, you know, I want, I want, I want more of it. Um, So it kind of leads, it it kind of leads to things maybe like Obi-Wan. It seems like (laughs) the, the fans, have not and of course not all of them but as a group it seems like they have a lot of sway uh and and kind of like the way south park lampoon yelp reviewers as like being genuine food critics and you know having the power to tear down the establishment of uh okay yeah i'm tangenting but basically i think it's an i think it's an urge that we all have when it comes to art and stories um but just like anything else, we, you know, let's, let's not over season the stew. And Silver Sight, I think is, I'm not saying that I have a problem with Silver Sight existing. I'm just saying when I hear the premise, that, that mm. nagging little thing in my head that says that's completely changing the nature of what this show is, I kind of just have to shut that guy up in a cabinet and be like, this is a kid's show. It's okay for it to be kind of fun. <laughs> Yeah, but no, I I get... and that's and that's how I'm an un, that's how I'm a square person. Don't worry about it, because I get you, and you know my my sticking point, as I described earlier, with all of this is just um you know the anthology nature of the show. I've actually been thinking about this uh, a lot lately, um, which is not to say that I haven't thought about it before. I certainly have, and I've done things in service of it. Um, but I just think the short form does not get the due that it deserves. You know, our 
it's like the foundation of our entire literary culture is built upon the short form our original you know oral legends were something that could be explained in one sitting um and you know they had so much like you're saying richness and thematic resonance just existing the way they were in that abbreviated format so when i see you know, folks turn around. I, I think I mentioned this other example in a previous episode or conversation, whichever it was, um, <clears throat> you know, that I I got really rankled back in the day. Nothing came to pass with it. But the whole thing of uh, Tales from the Dark Side being revived for the CW and, oh, Joe Hill is attached. All right. This is going to be awesome. And, oh, well, in, you know, reading like the press releases, yeah, they're going to be self-contained stories, but they're all going to be informing a larger narrative arc. And, you know, characters from these individual stories are eventually going to meet up and get together and fight the big bad. And I was like, oh, my fucking God, like, what is wrong with just <laughs> yeah. a single, what is wrong with just a single story being told in 30 minutes and then that's it. You move on with your life what you can do with that 30 minutes, what you can do with those 10 pages can change somebody's life. You know, it, it's like people equate smallness or shortness with a lack of something. But when people do write by the, by that form, they speak volumes and can be even more profound and impactful than a feature length production or a mini series or a what the fuck ever, you know, th and those are the things that people remember, <laughs> you know, we, we remember these stories, these individual stories for decades. Tale of the silver sight. <laughs> so there you have it. Listeners, the tale of the silver sight, the tale of the angry old bastards. I'd like to think that I would have been angry about this, you know, when I was younger. I don't think my age has anything to do with my being angry and terrible. Yeah, that's just stereotyping. Man, that is like some that is some Quinn level stereotyping right there. Uh that I just engaged in and I apologize. Quinn. Yeah, that's the name of from like Lost. No, that's something. the name of what? that's the name of our friend. Oh right, I already forgot. And it's funny, I saw in my notes that he that he had two other lines um in the third episode. Uh, right as they piece the record together, Quinn made reference to bringing this bad boy down. Yes. And uh, after they pieced it together, he said, spin the disc, man. <laughs> it's like, could you have had anybody what? else say those lines, please, for the love of God? Uh, I will say that I did appreciate, um, you know, if they, if, if they, if DJ McHale started out with archetypes for the original, um, society members and like who they became like what the chapter headings were going to be i did appreciate the fact that the tycoon was a lady that was a nice forward thinking twist it's like yeah why can't a tycoon be a lady that's nice yeah canadian yeah, so. progressive politics <laughs> right i feel like i should say something positive uh to end the episode on um i enjoyed the moment where when uh, Gary had the Midnight Society gather to tell them about the Silver Sight mythology, uh, and somebody, it might be Quinn again, I don't remember, but somebody says like, hey man, you got to give this story a title, and hands him the bag of uh, you know, sawdust or whatever it is that they throw in the fire. 
And then he goes to throw it in, and the fire mysteriously just just goes out right as he's about yeah. to throw in the thing. And somebody says, like, that's not normal. <laughs> I thought that was a fun moment. It, you know. It was a good touch. And by the way, it's a non-dairy creamer. I've heard that, yes. I learned that from the, the podcast episode with DJ McHale, non-dairy creamer. I know that's what it is behind the scenes, but I was curious if they ever had like an in-world thought about what it would be. Some Oh, uh, here's another random thing that I really appreciated from these episodes. I really loved, I don't know when these episodes uh you know time wise i don't know when these episodes were filmed but whether it was the genuine season or it was just really uh crafty set decoration i really love that they were able to capture a very autumnal feel across the three episodes it lended a nice atmosphere to the story yeah and i there's something about what else there was something else i was watching recently that made me have this thought but there's something kind of fun and nostalgic for want of a better word about like this is going to sound insulting but i mean it in a positive way about like low production value um Mm. kind of made for tv like like the suburbs where these kinds of things take place are very uncinematic like they're not impressive visually but there's something about that that to me that is really I mean, you said cozy a few times. It feels cozy. It feels like, you know, yeah, growing up in a real small town where things like all the houses just kind of look like boring houses. And this, you know, the buildings are not like framed architecture. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just kind of like dismal and ugly and from a certain and just like everything was built up at different times so nothing really matches and some stuff is like really old some stuff is kind of new and it's all like an equal flat level of boring that i think uh i really appreciate like it gives me like a certain feeling yeah no i definitely agree with that like even the amusement park oh yeah you you take that and stick it in a horror narrative and if it's a production of you know any kind of means that is going to be set decorated up the ass to play into like every little you know association that you can ring out of uh you know oh spooky amusement park you know well let's get the the dust you know the sawdust over here and uh we're, that's like a terrible example it's like wow <laughs> they really went all out they got sawdust um but uh, you know like really busy uh just really busy as far as set decoration you know because i am thinking back to like uh the uh, the first season of the Are You Afraid of the Dark revival, it was a whole, you know, circus theme. So, you know, they really went all out for that. But the what we have here in the Silver Side, it's very bare bones and kind of like haphazard in a way. Because you got like the fortune telling booth here just like on the sidewalk. And the carousel is like in the middle of what could basically be a parking lot. Like it's not close to anything. It really looks like just things that were dropped there. And, uh, you know, they're, they pass by uh, funhouse mirrors that are just sitting out on the pavement. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like, you know, I can imagine walking through a rain puddle 
through a place that looked like this. Yeah. It's just that note of familiarity. It's like, wow, I, this looks like a place that I could have visited at some point. So yeah, let's cap it with that. Let's cap it. Um, <laughs> but I'm trying to think of what they say at the end of an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I'm coming up empty. Did they just say the end? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think so. The end. I can see like some of them just, you know, with the wide eyes, they just, the end. <laughs> I think that's what they do. I think that is exactly what they do. So listeners, if uh, you have stuck with us for all three hours <laughs> of... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Cut I guess up we... into three parts, just like the silver state. Man. There you go. Oh man, there you go. That'll that'll keep uh that'll keep our listener base well fed for a while. Yeah, really. If we release, yeah, if we release once a month, you can reach us via email at blackmagictreehousepod pod at gmail dot com. Uh, that is actually the same handle as our Instagram account, which is blackmagictreehousepod once again. And, uh, you know, I've been talking about starting a Twitter account. Maybe that'll happen. I don't know. That platform seems to be doing pretty well based on all the headlines and social media spousings that I've been seeing. So, yeah, why not? Maybe we'll show up on Twitter. Maybe we won't. So, Eric, do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners who probably look like skeletons inside a suit of armor by this point listening to us for so long? Hey, that's a fun callback. Um, I, you know, what yeah. I'm really interested in is I would love it if people have like hot takes about like, you know, season six midnight society is my midnight society, you know, uh, like, that how dare you? Well, I don't even, well, I guess they could be angry if they want, but I just mean like in a, I would just love to hear about that. Cause that's so not my experience. Um, so, you know, if anybody wants to tell us what they like about season six or, you know, cause I always think about like, um, I think there's sort of a knee jerk reaction to say that like once Mulder left the X-Files, mm. you know, it went downhill. And then there's also a contingent of people who are like, well, actually season eight has a lot of really solid episodes. So I don't know. Is Are You Afraid of the Dark the same way? Is season six, the X-Files season eight of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Should I check it out? <laughs> even though it's really difficult to do so because it just barely exists anywhere. Um, yeah, what are some can. of the great stories from season six and seven? Uh, who, who's the best actor? Uh, don't answer that. <laughs> yes, I think we all know. Uh, but thank you for joining us once again up here in the Black Magic Treehouse. We will be back again next month with another episode looking at the creepy kid culture of the past. And we can't wait to see you then. Have a great night. Goodbye. Mm.